Our reading is from the letter of James in the Newer Testament, um, and it actually has a reference to the Exodus story that is often missed by Gentile, that is, non-Jewish ears. Uh, and let me just uh, reread it. Um, Hope did a great job, but let's let it sink in a little bit more. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, important phrases, perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. So, um, by the way, feel free to uh, throw chat things in anytime. It's always good. I'm like talking to like a, almost like a blank screen, so it helps me know, know I'm part of a part of a group and all that. You can give amens or help them, lords or whatever whatever you're moved by. Um, but this, uh, the letter of James was written by a Jewish writer to Jewish exiles who were scattered around the Roman Empire, who claimed Jesus as their as their Jewish rabbi. And so tradition, it's a pretty strong tradition, says that James was um, either the sibling uh, or the cousin of Jesus. The Greek word could mean either. So when James refers to the perfect law, um, his Jewish readers would assume that he's referring to Torah, to the law of Moses given on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, the law that was interpreted by their rabbi Jesus. The second phrase, law of liberty, is another reference to Exodus, because Exodus, of course, is the oldest story of liberation from oppression that we have. Um, so in Hebrew, remember Torah, you've probably heard that phrase, often meaning the law, has a very broad meaning. So Torah can refer to the first five books of Moses. This is a copy of the Torah in the Hebrew Bible. It's called the five books of Moses. Of course, by calling it the five books of Moses, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it's kind of privileging the Moses story, which is in Exodus. So Torah also means instruction or teaching. And uh, so, but keep in mind that Torah in, in the Jewish understanding includes lots of stories. So uh, the book of Genesis, which is Torah, is the first book of Torah, and it has very few laws. And um, much of this, of course, is lost on Gentile, non-Jewish uh, Christians who suffer from, often from Gentile supremacy, we could say, which eventually gave birth to white supremacy, another story. So James is doing midrash. We introduced that term recently. Uh, just means interpretation, commentary, connecting things with current events. Uh, James is actually in his letter doing commentary, Midrash, on Exodus, and he's saying the law of liberty, the Exodus story, is a mirror that we look into. So mirrors obviously help us see ourselves. But James says we often look away from the, this particular mirror, the Exodus story, and we, we forget what we saw there. This is kind of an unusual thing to do with a mirror, usually a remember, but this mirror we often look away and we forget what we saw there. So he's urging us to persevere in looking into this particular mirror, the law of liberty, the Exodus story. 
so we can meet God as we see ourselves, and then we can hear what God says to us and do what God says, like happened with Moses. He met God, God spoke to him, and then after dealing with his own resistance, he did what God told him to do. Um, so why would we look away from the law of liberty mirror, the Exodus store mirror? Well, probably because part of what we see there isn't very flattering. So the mirror stories about race that win best picture at the Oscars tend to flatter white people. Um, these mirror stories are often about a white person and a black person who improbably transcend race to end up as chums. This is the storyline of uh, Driving Miss Daisy that won best picture in 1998. Sometimes the white person starts out kind of racist and is won over by the warmth and the humanity of the black person, like in Green Book, uh, which won Best Picture in um, 2019-18. And I think it's telling that both these movies won Best Picture in years that Spike Lee Lee films (laughs) with much more honest depictions of race in America were, were kind of stiffed. Uh, so in you know in film schools, they're talking about do the right thing all the time, and driving Miss Daisy's kind of forgotten. I think the same will be true of Klansman in 2018. And that and that says nothing about a whole spate of stories where good white people who are kind to minorities are contrasted with the bad white people who are the bad racists. Um, And so we all wanna be the good white people, like Anne with an E has some of these themes in the first couple of seasons, the Netflix uh, series, the good Canadians. Um, Well, it's not enough. So Exodus tells a more honest truth about oppression and what makes it possible. And we're trying to spend some time looking in this mirror in recent weeks. So last Sunday we saw, I think it was at Exodus 1, we saw how a group of Hebrew refugees in Egypt who were shown quite uh, warm hospitality by their Egyptian neighbors for many generations are forced into slavery in one generation at the instigation of a new Pharaoh, but with the full cooperation of the Egyptian people, which is actually stressed in the story that tells this part. Without the Egyptian people, no slavery. And once that first generation of Egyptians establishes a new status quo oppression, then that status quo tends to perpetuate itself if it's unopposed vigorously, which it it isn't by the Egyptians. So if we're looking into this mirror story and we're looking for ourselves, and we are Americans designated as white, in case we are, well, where do we find ourselves in the mirror? Well, we're the Egyptians, and we're not exerting sufficient force to change the status quo that supports gross injustices and inequities. Uh, Ouch. So if we read Exodus asking, where are the Egyptians who opposed the status quo, who were working to dismantle the oppression? Well, they're missing. So Pharaoh's daughter, I think this is still in Exodus 1, finds the Hebrew baby uh, in the Nile, and she's moved to pity, and she raises the child as her own. She names him Moses, 
but she doesn't use her influence as Pharaoh's daughter, which that's not insignificant, to advocate for the Hebrews. She's, she's nice to one baby. So Moses, who is, remember, raised in Egypt by Egyptian, his name is an Egyptian name, eventually becomes an advocate for the Hebrews. But of course, he was born a Hebrew. So he has a very complex um, identity. Caroline would say he's in, a very intersectional person. So a Hebrew raised Egyptian who marries Zipporah, a Midianite, who's later, the Midianites were later enemies of the Israelites. And he's steeped in the culture of Egypt. I mean, he probably was served by Hebrew slaves growing up. <laughs> But he's also willing to renounce all that privilege to side with the Hebrews. And it's a rocky road throughout his relationship with his fellow Hebrews. Um, Moses' first efforts are really ham-handed. I mean, he kind of comes in a little bit like white savior dude, and um, he kills an Egyptian who is abusing a Hebrew, thinks he's doing a great favor. But this probably put every Hebrew slave at risk, you know, when word comes out that, a, that an Egyptian taskmaster has been killed. I mean, this is bad news. And, and so when Moses comes back and then he tries to split up a fight between two Hebrews, if you remember that part, they don't really take to it very kindly. Um, so Moses, who's like the, one of the founders of Israelite identity, isn't allowed at the end of Exodus into the promised land. So more on that um, some other time. So, so he's kind of a mixed figure. All to say, if Exodus is a mirror and we look into it honestly, persevering in our looking, we don't see the good Egyptians that we can identify with as if to, as if to say, well, I'm one of those good Egyptians who is so much better than those racist Egyptians. That's not what we see in the mirror, the law of liberty mirror. And, and by the way, law of liberty is a kind of an odd phrase. We don't think of laws as liberty things, but the first thing God says in the Garden of Eden is what? You are free. So the first law, you could say, in Torah is law of liberty. So the only thing that really makes any difference, even with Moses, who's born as a Hebrew, so he's got Hebrew identity, is to meet the God of the Hebrews in the wilderness who talks to him like this. Maybe we could throw this up on the chat. This is uh, Exodus 3. Uh, Moses and God having this encounter I indeed, God speaking, have seen the abuse of my people that is in Egypt. It's in Egypt, and that's emphasized, not under Pharaoh, in Egypt. And it's outcry because of its taskmasters. taskmasters. I have heard, for I know its pain. And I have come down to rescue it from the hand of Egypt and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now look, the outcry of the Israelites has now come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressed, and now go that I may send you to Pharaoh. So God gives Moses an assignment to do something about it. Uh, as the 
a count goes on, Moses resists. Like, who am I to do this? And I'm like, well, who are you? You're Pharaoh's grandson, you know, like Disney is planning a movie about you and they're calling it the Prince of Egypt. So like, it's not like you're some random person. Um, God is a little more gracious to Moses than that. But let's just stop telling ourselves the good people, uh, good white people, bad white people story. Let's do the work that God is giving us to do and drop our preoccupation with wanting to see ourselves as the good guys compared to the bad guys. So the Gospel of Luke has an interaction that really helps us with this. Um, he's a really interesting encounter between a wealthy ruler, an Israelite, I think, um, who approaches Jesus saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus, in a, in a very curious fashion, responds, why do you call me good? And I'm, I'm like, well, um, because you're Jesus, and you're, they're going to name Christmas after you? I mean, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, no one is good but God alone is not the only truth about human goodness. And that's really important to say. So Israel's origin story in Genesis 1 shows the creation unfolding and God says, oh, it's good. And then he includes a very good when the creation creates humans. But the rich ruler was wanting something else. He wanted to feel good about himself and keep his privilege. So Jesus gave him this other truth about human goodness. No one is good but God alone. And for emphasis, Jesus applies that to himself as a fellow human being. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So sometimes this is the truth about human goodness that we need to hear, and it can be a kind of liberation for us. Um, like, don't be preoccupied with your goodness. No one is good but God alone. It's especially the truth uh, about our goodness that we need to hear when we want to preserve our privilege, like the rich young ruler wanted to. So hear me on this distinction. When people are shaming us, saying, you're no good, we need to hear the, and God saw that it was very good of Genesis, and know that's for us. But when we're trying to hold on to our privilege and and feel good about ourselves doing so, then it's time for us to hear, no one is good but God alone. So for, for Moses, it's not about being good or bad. Moses is like the usual mixture in Exodus. I mean, uh, for Moses, um, it's about meeting God, the God of the oppressed, who's pissed off about their abuse, and then facing the fact that God wants him to do something about it and has a specific task for Moses to carry out, something Moses can do. Remember the Midrash on this story, but be doers of the word. In other words, the word there is like specific instruction in a given moment, a word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. 
For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they're like those who go look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, Torah, the law of liberty, Exodus, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. They will be blessed. So, um, I want to suggest, and then wrapping up here, FYI, um, I want to suggest this is a particularly good time for many of us to let go of this burden of trying to be good. Um, I think when we look back on this time, on 2020 and into 2021, we'll, we will see it as a kind of hinge of history, like big things are shifting and we don't really know which way they're going, but some kind of hinge is turning. And it's one of those times when many of the pressures in our lives are intensified, like the ordinary pressures of living life are just intensified. And we've received two additional, like, impositions of history. And, you know, one is getting through a global pandemic and the second imposition of history is confronting white supremacy. So in both cases, the attempt to feel we're good at this is just gonna add to our misery. It's like, it's futile. So let's take handling this pandemic. We were, we were talking in the panel before we got started, Liz was joining us and it's gonna do a mom bear move. We're catching up. Most of us are connected to people with different approaches to social distancing, or, or we're, in, we're in cultural settings where there's lots of contention over that. And we're making, we're having to make different judgment calls about like which risky thing to do. And like maybe our Fox News loved ones are making us feel bad wearing masks. Um, maybe uh, as an older person, maybe adult kids want us to take the grandkids for a weekend and we're like, um, I'm not sure that's a good idea. And we feel lousy about that. Or um, we're having to become our own public health experts on the fly and, and everything's shifting and the messages are confused and, and it's hard and we're like a little over our heads. We don't have a degree in public health. We're not epidemiologists. And this is not like a feel good about ourselves recipe. Um, maybe our usual like baseline anxiety is up say 30%. I, I don't know about you, but anxiety like there's no cathartic expression of anxiety like there is for sadness. You cry, you get it out, you say, oh, that felt good. With anxiety, there's no cathartic release. We just feel anxious and we feel often bad about ourselves feeling anxious. We feel lame, we feel crummy, we feel grouchy. Okay, just to continue this theme, this is shared misery, people. Are there any parents of school-age kids who are feeling like, hey, I'm doing good, a really good job managing work and keeping the kids occupied. And I'm super confident that I will be head of the curve, helping them keep up with their educational objectives in the fall. If so, we invite you to give a testimony and we will throw icon <laughs> tomatoes at you <laughs> if you tell that story of how good you're doing. 
So, I mean, are the kids saying to you, mom, you are a good mom. I know these restrictions are for my good and I'm going to thank you for it. No, wanting to be good in the middle of a pandemic will only add to our misery. So when there's a voice in our head saying, hey, a good pandemic coper, good pandemic manager, we have our answer. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. When there's a voice in our heads that's saying, oh, good parent, we've got our answer. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So that's the pandemic. Now, history is imposing on us the need to dismantle faith and dismantle white supremacy. Um, and we can't avoid this just because it's a massive inconvenience right now. And believe me, if there's a voice in your head trying to call you, and I'm speaking to um, the white people among us here, trying to call you, hey, good white person, sit that voice down, look it in the eye, and say, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Our little class on facing white supremacy, which is going to be co-hosted by myself and Jen Nelson and um, uh, Susan Schaefer, it starts at four o'clock today. It's not too hard to, uh, not too late to start up. Um, facing white supremacy in ourselves and our families, this class will not make us feel good that we are the good white people while say our Fox loving family members are racist. No, we're gonna face the infection in ourselves. Um, you know, finding less than someone else in terms of infection, doesn't really qualify us as good. It's not about good. It's about looking in the mirror, the law of liberty, meeting ourselves there, which places us sufficiently in our real selves to hear from the real God, tell us what to do and how to move forward. So when Jesus said to the guy who called him good teacher, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. I think he was addressing the man's religious ego. Religious ego is about looking good to our judging self. So sometimes I have a bully inside. We also have a judging self inside. Religious ego is about looking good to our judging self. We know it's part of our judging self because we often take comfort in our own goodness by judging others as less good. Like that's the easiest way to get there. What I'm saying is I think it can be a great relief to let the religious ego go. Just to let it chirp away while we pay it no mind. Let it become part of the background noise. Over time, as we let it go, it will open space in us for more profitable engagement with God, where we feel what God feels, we're moved by what moves God, and we're ready to receive an instruction that comes from God's heart to our heart. So if this resonates with you, I'd like to offer a prayer of release from the religious ego. Um, I, I worked on this prayer, so let me let me offer it now. Maybe take a nice deep breath in myself, starting just to relax and pray this for you. God of the Hebrews, 
God of the oppressed, God of Moses, move to distress, anger, and compassion at the suffering of your children. Make space in our hearts to meet you in the wilderness, the desert places of our lives. In the name of our Rabbi Jesus, who interprets for us the law of liberty, release us from the affliction of the young ruler who approached him with the words, good teacher. Release us from the chirping of the religious ego, the need we have to look good to the judging self. Permit us, Lord, to ignore this incessant voice in our heads, the one that is neither, either never satisfied or it's only satisfied at the expense of others we deem to be worse than ourselves. Prepare us instead for encounter with you and for those specific instructions you have for each of us that correspond to our times, our abilities, and your heart. Amen. Now we'll have uh, Liz Dyer give the Mama Bear a minute. Thank you. Um, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I hope all of you are staying safe and doing well. This morning, I wanted <clears throat> to take a moment to say something about John Lewis, who passed away earlier this month at the age of 80. For most of us, there will only be a handful of people in our lifetime who we consider to be real heroes, people who really inspire us to be the best version of ourselves, who have a, a big impact on who we are and how we live our lives. Congressman and civil rights giant John Lewis was such a person for me and for many others. John Lewis was the youngest and last surviving member of the big six civil rights activists who led the fight to end legalized segregation and overturn Jim Crow laws. He spoke at the March on Washington in 1963. He was arrested dozens of times when he was out protesting and also he was beaten as a freedom rider. Lewis believed in making good trouble, uh, the kind of trouble that disrupts and changes uh, the status quo and, and forces change. Uh, in his own words, he said, get in good trouble, necessary trouble, and redeem the soul of America. Speak up, speak out, get in the way. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble. I love that idea. Um, one reason I love it is because I'm a mama bear and I'm gonna keep getting into some good trouble. I'm gonna keep showing up and speaking up and making some noise and getting in the way because I'm gonna to continue to advocate for our LGBTQ kids. But I also like the idea because I'm a Christian, because I'm a follower of Jesus, because Jesus was also known to get in some good trouble during his days on earth. Over and over again, he showed up and presented radical ideas that challenged the status quo. He asked people to join his movement. He openly confronted and defied unjust laws and traditions. He would call out people in power who were unjust. He inspired and sent out other protesters, and he and his followers often got in trouble for doing these things. Throughout his life, Jesus protested and brought awareness about gender inequality, religious hypocrisy, political corruption, racism, hate, um, segregation, and social injustice. 
So today, as we remember John Lewis and honor his legacy, and at the same time reflect upon the life of Jesus, my hope is that we'll all be encouraged, inspired, and empowered to make some noise, to get in the way, and to create some good trouble. Stay safe, wash your hands, wear your mask, keep spreading the love, and go ahead and make some good trouble. Thanks.